This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute. More about that at law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I. Also, be sure to follow McCann Sports Law on Twitter because uh, he's our rock star over there on that service. Um, so I want to start off with, you actually had a, a recent exclusive interview with uh, former U.S. soccer team goalkeeper Hope Solo and her attorney Rich Nichols uh, with regards to their, they actually have an ongoing case still with regards to, uh, against U.S. soccer. Uh, kind of just give the high level for those that aren't informed specifically on what her case is about and then we'll go further. Sure. Thanks, AJ. So your audience probably knows that there is litigation against U.S. soccer brought by women players over pay and their argument that they've been underpaid. U.S. soccer has argued that they're not underpaid and that they agreed to these terms in a CBA. And that, that's a familiar story. In that case, a class action, a tentative settlement was recently reached worth up to $24 million dollars. And that's the media has generally described this as well. Now it's over. There's a resolution, but there's another case out there that hasn't gotten nearly as much attention, but was actually first. And it was, as you noted, Hope Solo. Hope Solo sued U.S. Soccer over the same set of issues a half year earlier than the other players did. And her case is not over. There's no settlement. It didn't lose at the district court level. The other case did. There's been no appeal to the Ninth Circuit. So I spoke with Solo about her case, her criticisms of the settlement, and the fact that this issue, although has been portrayed as sort of being over, isn't in her, in her view, and, and it's not in the sense that she has an ongoing litigation. Is there a big difference between the two cases with regards to what's being alleged? No, they're extremely similar. They both involve the same sets of laws, the Equal Pay Act and the Civil Rights Act in gar- regarding salary. The, so the laws are the same in terms of those that are, have been raised. And although she's part of the class action as well under civil rights law, the Equal Pay Act claim is, is not preempted by the, by the tentative settlement. So that will continue. But yeah, the cases are extremely similar. Has she had a day in court yet with, the, with regards to this? I'm assuming that the bandwidth that the courts have available has greatly impacted her ability to have the case proceed. Yeah, so her case was essentially put on hold while the other case pr- progressed. And now that the other case has reached a tentative settlement and will go back to the district court, she is going to restart her case or reactivate her case before a different federal judge and a different federal court. And it will be interesting to see if she has more success than the players did. The players lost at the district court level. We don't know what would happen on the appeal because of the tentative settlement that ended the appeal. But but complicating things further, and as she noted in the interview, we, we don't we don't know for sure the settlement is a done deal because it requires U.S. soccer reaching collective bargaining agreements with the men's team and the women's team where there would be pay equality. What that actually means, particularly given 
that some of the, the big gap in pay reflects World Cup money governed by FIFA, not U.S. soccer, it starts to get complicated. And if those complications ultimately disrupt the settlement, it could be that that case is reactivated as well. We just don't know. It, I mean, what does it mean for precedent, I mean, in this situation? If there's two different cases, maybe in theory they end up ruled on differently. I mean, what does that mean going forward? I, as someone who's, who's not an attorney here, it, it, it seems like it would be very confusing. I mean, you tend to think of when uh, case law is created, someone determines what's going to happen going forward. But these are two very similar cases with uh, different people involved. Yeah, and, and on that, I spoke with our resident UNH law expert on CivPro. We have several of them, uh, including John Gravy and Jordan Budd, but there, there are others. But I spoke with John Gravy about this specific issue and, and I wanted to confirm that basically I had it right. And he said, yeah, I mean, this is, it's very possible to have two district courts reach opposite conclusions in the same, essentially the same set of legal case, uh, arguments. Uh, and a very similar set of facts. The Ninth Circuit is not going to is no longer part of this because the appeal has been withdrawn. So we don't know how the appellate court would rule. So it's possible. I, I mean, is it likely this is going to happen? No, but it's possible that two different federal courts, district courts in California, but in different districts, could reach opposite conclusions. And if that were to happen, uh, I assume the Ninth Circuit would then clearly have to take. One on, one on appeal and issue a resolution because there would be a direct conflict between the two. Would there be any long-term implications for FIFA with regards to this, or is this just going to be strictly limited to U.S. soccer and their contract negotiations? So I, FIFA is certainly monitoring it and is impacted because FIFA provides very different pay. It's more than a $30 million gap between men's soccer and women's soccer at the global level. So with World Cup prizes, the men's players make way more than the women. And that has been part of the problem for women players here because the U.S. has the best women's team. Uh, I, th I think it's just a sort of clear fact if you look at the last 20 years. Whereas the men's team isn't nearly as good relative to their competition. So this has led to women's players winning, but not getting nearly the financial awards that uh, men's teams that have won have gotten. So FIFA is certainly part of the story, but they're under no obligation to do anything. They can, they can continue to pay men's players much more than women's players for World Cup money. The, the, the way in which that gets distilled down to this issue is that U.S. soccer has said, we want the men's and women's teams to agree on some mechanism that would equalize that money so that there isn't a disparity. We don't know what that mechanism is, and we don't know if they're both going to agree to it. So that's where it gets back to this. There's a lot of stuff that's unresolved here. Is there anything else that stood out to you from your interview with Hope Solo? No. I mean, I, I think she clearly has voiced a view that she wants us to continue, and she feels as if she's been ignored. This was the first interview she has conducted. The case began four years ago. And she's a, a pretty prominent figure in sports, too. So mm -hmm. I think there's a sense from her part that traditional media has ignored her. And uh, she's certainly hoping that she gets that her case gets more attention. And I asked her, was she annoyed by this? 
And she said annoyed is not the right word. It's really frustrated more than annoyed because it's, she believes in these issues. And whether somebody agrees with her or not, she clearly has conviction about them. So uh, it, it's worth following. Yeah, I mean, she put her money where her mouth is before anyone else on the team. I mean, that, that definitely stands out. And that's, yeah, I understand frustration for sure out of that. So it'll be interesting to continue to follow that. So we'll uh, definitely follow this whole U.S. women's soccer team's uh, cases going forward for sure. Uh, let's move over to the WNBA, where right now they have a star player that's actually uh, incarcerated in Russia amidst this conflict that's going on against Ukraine. Yeah, Brittany Grenier, a WNBA star, Olympian, very famous, accomplished player, has been playing, like other players, other WNBA players, has been playing abroad during the offseason. It's a way, their, their salaries are, are not nearly as high as NBA players, so it's a way of essentially getting a second salary during the year. So it's not uncommon to have star players in particular do that. Grenier's been playing in Russia for the last seven years. So, and it, and it had, as far as I can tell, everything had been fine until last month when, according to Russian authorities, she was going through the airport and she had drug paraphernalia in her bags and she was arrested and Russia has pretty draconian laws when it comes to drugs. It's not like the U.S. where marijuana, at least under some states' laws, although not federal law, is lawful. Very different story in Russia, very severe penalties. So she was arrested and she's being portrayed as engaging in drug trafficking. Under Russian law, if she's convicted of what she's been charged with, she could be sentenced to 10 years in prison. The U.S. government has said it's been unable to reach her and... Russia has said that's not true. I mean, there's a lot of sort of one side saying the other, who knows what to believe under the consulate law between U.S. and Russia, the U.S. is supposed to have access to an American detained within four days. That apparently has not often happened, as it's been described. So she has not, at least from what we know, met with the U.S. embassy. Uh, it seems as if she has an attorney over there, from what what I gather, but it's like looking into the black box. We don't really know what's going on over there. And obviously, you know, Russia is not a country that we have confidence in, in terms of its truthfulness and its intentions. So that complicates things further, not to mention the fact that Russia is now in a war uh, with the U.S. allies. So it, it gets pretty, it's, it's a pretty complex and, and, and for, uh, for Brittany Greer, no doubt, fr uh, frightening situation. Oh, yeah. Uh, terrifying. I mean, it, to me, it just uh, it brings back. We've heard had multiple times over the previous few decades where someone's gotten gotten stuck in North Korea uh, for various reasons, and they're stuck there for years with no way to get out because there's no real communication. And essentially, with the way that the United States has sta sanctioned Russia and so many private industries have pulled out of operating in that country, communication services don't really exist there that are now, that, that usually would be, like Facebook and such is pulled out. So in, there could have been little hints that kind of got out via those services that aren't really available. And if she can't get a hold of a United States attorney necessarily in this situation, it's, it's got to be very difficult and terrifying for her. Yeah, no question about it. And, uh, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War as a kid. I remember the 1980s. And this has to be the worst period of relations between Russia and the United States since that time. And 
It, it is. You, you mentioned North Korea. It's, it's sort of a similar situation in the sense that we just don't have access to what's going on. And we don't trust the process. I mean, that's part of it, too, right? That we don't have confidence that an American is going to be treated fairly by the legal system of an adversary, essentially. And I think Russia clearly has gone back to uh, an adversarial position vis-a-vis the United States. Maybe it's always been, even after the Cold War, but clearly the, 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 any ambiguity is gone now. So uh, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty frightening. Now we don't. I mean, if she committed the crime, you know that's then there's some onus on her. I mean, this is right. she's been there a while, right? So this is not a you know this is not a rookie mistake, if you will. She's been there for a while. She had to have known that drug laws in Russia are draconian. But who who knows what to believe? Do we really trust that this is that this, that these charges are real? We we have reason to doubt it. Yeah, well, Cold War, Cold War era plays where you hold hold a hostage for some PR move, which is very unfortunate. But that's that's something that there's historical precedent for with the United States versus Russia um, uh, relations. Oh, no, no doubt. And this is going back to the old days, which is which is sad on a level because it, it means that you know our, our we're we're going to be in a much more complicated and uh, serious foreign policy situation with respect to Russia than we have been. And, and given the history of animosity between these two countries and given their uh, access to very frightening weapons, uh, it's, it's not good. So some, moving over to something else, there, there's some breaking news today. We're recording this on Tuesday, March 22nd. You'll listen to this at some point over the next coming days. Joys of our rotation of the podcast here. But the, the MLB got some uh, bad news, I'm assuming, for them from a business standpoint where uh, an appeals court has ordered a letter that Ma- Rob Manfred wrote to be released with regards to the Yankee sign-stealing scandal. Right. So a few years ago, baseball was sued as part of of a case brought by daily fantasy sports players who argued that they were cheated when they DFS companies don't like to use the word bet, but let's just use that word for now. They, or they better spent money on making player projections, of course, because of the sign stealing scandals involving most notably the Astros, but also the Yankees and Red Sox, uh, that the statistics were disrupted. So they brought a case saying that baseball essentially engaged in, unlawful business practices. That case didn't succeed. But as part of that case, there was discovery, limited discovery, but discovery nonetheless. And one part of discovery was a letter that Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, wrote to the Yankees general manager, Brian Cashman, that the plaintiffs have argued contradicted Manfred's statement, public statements about what happened with the Yankees, perhaps implying that, it, that what he said publicly wasn't as bad as what really happened. At least that's what you could infer. And baseball and the Yankees have argued that letter should be sealed, that it would cause embarrassment and confusion, all of that. Now a district court and now the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit said, no, this is judicial documents are entitled to public disclosure. This is you know why, why companies don't like going to trials, because it's public. And there's no, there's no credible argument the court found that this document should remain sealed. So it will be released in some redacted version at some point. 
And this is very messy for the MLB, especially with regards to the implications around sports betting, because um, you, you want to have that sign of legitimacy that you're doing something with with MLB games that they're going to be held fairly and the rules are going to be followed. I mean, I remember this scandal really blowing up. It caused issues for the Astros, the, the Red Sox, the Yankees. It was across the league. Yeah, and those are teams that, were found to have engaged in wrongdoing. The Astros, the worst in mm. terms of the scope of what, but the, the Red Sox and Yankees were also doing things. The Yankees used a dugout phone. The Red Sox were using wa- electronic watches. I mean, they, and this isn't, uh, there's no question. It wasn't limited to those three teams, right? I mean, those are the three teams that were caught. I mean, I, I think it's fair to reason that teams are doing all sorts of things using technology to gain advantages. And, uh, yeah, it does. It means if you're betting or DFS, if you're projecting stats, comes with the territory. I mean, in a way, that's what the court is saying that, you know, if you don't like this, don't don't bet. I mean, this is this is you're, you know, you're you're relying on these games that where players commit penalties, where referees are, are imperfect. They're going to miss calls. There are a lot of disruptions to the process that create a level of risk. And the courts are saying it's really not our problem. It's not the problem for the legal system to address. It's, it's you, the better you, the DFS contestant. Uh, don't play if you don't like the risk. I'm assuming like businesses like DraftKings and such are going to say, no, 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 this is going to be a multi-billion dollar industry in the coming years, and we really can't have that going on. I mean, is this going to likely end up being something that's handled outside of the court system, do you think? I don't think so, honestly. I think the court system is going to be reluctant to get into this turf for the reason you just noted. I mean, DraftKings, which is a partner of baseball and other leagues, they have an interest in seeing games fairly officiated and and an absence of cheating because it creates a level of risk that could deter people from spending money with them. But in a way, it's it's up to DraftKings to sort of exert its influence or FanDuel Mm -hmm. or whatever company to say, look, you know, this is a partnership. If you're not going to be an ethical partner, if you're not going to crack down on this, then we'll do our business elsewhere. Has this basically stayed within within this within the courts and between the different companies? Has this reached the legislative point, legislative branch at all? It hasn't, in, in, not in this regard. I mean, the, uh, clearly, states have legalized sports betting, as we know, including our state of New Hampshire. But in the context of going after cheating, it's something that. It's pretty rare where the legislature has taken action. There is a Sports Corruption Act, uh, Bribery Act from the early 1960s that's been used very rarely in the context of uh, horse racing and boxing, but not in the major leagues. So, and it's technically a felony if somebody violates it, but again, it's not something that prosecutors have shown a lot of interest in using. I think there's a sense that it's not a, a meritorious use of time for the government to sort of be cracking down on a possible cheating in leagues. That it's really, it's up to them to figure it out. And if they can't figure it out and games are considered illegitimate, then fans will do something else with their time and money. They'll, they'll watch streaming services. You know, there's so many entertainment choices that I think leagues have to be responsive to fans in ways that they didn't before. 
Professor Michael McCann, Director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute, law.unh.edu slash S-E-L-I. For more information, definitely follow him on Twitter at McCann Sports Law. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.